If I said, this above all, to thine own self be true, if I said, conscience doth make cowards of us all, or if Richard Burton said, Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt for and resolve itself into a dew. If Kenneth Branagh said, Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Richard, a fellow of infinite jest of most... If we all said all that, could you guess which play we're going to talk about for the next half hour? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Of course, we're quoting from Hamlet, Shakespeare's eminently quotable tragedy about a college student with mommy issues, dead daddy issues, baby girlfriend issues, a love of dead clowns, a hatred of actors who tear a passion to tatters, and some of the greatest writing in the English language. Noted biographer and theater historian Jonathan Kroll has written a new book titled Performing Hamlet, Actors in the Modern Age, which looks at 43 of the highest profile Hamlet productions in England over the last 50 years, exploring how Laurence Olivier, Alec Guinness, Michael Redgrave, Jonathan Slinger, Adrian Lester, and many, many others have portrayed one of Shakespeare's most memorable characters. Mr. Kroll came into the studio recently to tell us what he learned. We call this podcast, What a Piece of Work. Jonathan Kroll is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Jonathan, why don't we start the way many of the directors in your book uh, seem to begin rehearsals for Hamlet, which is with some background history. So who was this figure of Hamlet that Shakespeare drew his inspiration from? Well, the figure of Hamlet goes back a long way. It's been in folklore in Scandinavia for many centuries. And more recently, there was a book by somebody called Bell Forest, which had the story of Hamlet, not quite in the same form as Shakespeare had it. Um, so it goes back an awful long way. And the name signifies, is synonymous with wild man or imbecile in that folklore. Uh, absolutely, yes. It is. And I, I didn't know this uh, until I read your book, that there is some claim that... Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet was initially written for a tour of the English universities. There's some record of payments for the first performance that indicated it, it the performance could have been at Oxford. So does this suggest that Hamlet was a play meant for young people of university age? Well, it does imply that, certainly. And of course, it would be an extremely apt play for that particular audience. I mean, the record's very patchy, but it does suggest that um, the first performance could have been at Oxford. Let's talk about this issue of age and Hamlet, and and it really is something every director considers in the casting, uh, if I can gather that from your book. Richard Burbage was the first Hamlet, and he played it when he was 35 years old. But looking over all of these productions... What do you think? Does it matter what age the actor is? Well, I think it matters a little bit more than it did in Burbage's age. He actually went on playing it till he was 70. And David Garrick later played it till he was 69. But these days, among the productions I've covered, 40 isn't uncommon. I mean, Simon Russell Beale was um, about to have his 40th birthday. Um, Alan Rickman was 46. Michael Maloney was 47. So, and, and Mark Rylance 
played it twice. He was 28 when he first played it, but then he came back to the Globe, where he was artistic director 12 years later, and played it at the age of 40. So I think the age is much less important than you might think it would be. I mean, Hamlet is supposed to be a young man, but by the end of the play, it is reckoned that he's probably about 30. So he obviously, having been a student at Wittenberg, may have spent several years there, but it, it is open to all all ages of actors, which is partly why so many people are able to play it. But I, what I was thinking about when you were talking about all of these different ages of, of Hamlet was that um, uh, when you were writing about the 1951 production with Alec Guinness, and you quote a critic who said, this young actor is obviously not trying any of the things in Hamlet, which are the ABC of the part. What, what do you think are the ABCs of the part? Because clearly age is not well, really part of it. I think it's more accurate to say A to Z because Hamlet has so many qualities. He's multifaceted. I mean, he's at different times in the play, he's witty, he's cynical, he's cruel, he's sweet, he's harsh, he's very theatrical, he's, he's full of energy, he's melancholic. And so... As somebody once said, there are as many Hamlets as the number of actors who play him. I mean, he is the most, probably the most complex character in classical drama. And uh, he's certainly one of the rare ones who looks into his own psyche. So it's a psychological journey through his inner self. And many of the actors that I spoke to said that it was a question of mining yourself in order to get to Hamlet. I mean, Simon Russell Beale summed it up very well when he said Hamlet is a very hospitable part. It'll take anything you throw at it. Yeah, and I think someone said you can't hit hit all the aspects of its character. You can only you're lucky if you if you get two and f- and focus in. Well, picking up on this idea of all of those characters and in all of that those elements of of Hamlet's personality, you quote Richard Burton, one of the uh, some people's favorite Hamlet, as saying. Shakespeare put on the stage in one character virtually every emotion of which a man is capable. Pity, terror, fear, love, lust, obscenity, virtue, courage, and cowardice. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt or and resolve itself into a dew. Oh, that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. God. God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fire upon a fire! There's an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this, but two months dead. Nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr, so loving to my mother that he might not redeem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Do you find that's more true of Hamlet than, say, King Lear or Richard III? Or at least the actors and directors who you, who you interview. Do, how do they think about that? Um, the, not many of them made the comparison, but I certainly did because I, three years ago I wrote a similar book on King Lear called Performing King Lear. So I interviewed a lot of actors and got to know the play very well. And it's certainly true that King Lear takes a long, long time to understand himself and only does so at the very end and has only learned his lesson about life by, by going mad. 
Um, Richard III has much less introspection in, in him and I think would not be an obvious comparison. But the, the, the actors I spoke to, um, I mean, they, they felt that Hamlet was, I mean, many of them said that Hamlet was the most difficult play and, the, the I mean, it's the longest part, 1,500 lines, um, the most difficult play to, to get right. Uh, and that accounts for the extraordinary variety of productions that we've had over the last 50, 60, 70 years. We recently had Derek Jacobi on the podcast, and he said, among other things, that the way you make your part your own is how you react in any of the given situations of the play. So rather than you becoming Hamlet, Hamlet becomes you. Bigger than I am. I'm even poor in thanks, but I thank you. And sure, dear friends, my thanks are too dear a halfpenny. Were you not sent for? Is it your own inclining? Is the free visitation? Come, come. Deal justly with me. You're looking for your own expression of all of these qualities within the spontaneous reaction to what is going on within the, within the plot. Yes, I think that's very true. I mean, Derek Jacobi performed the part 400 times, so he had a need to keep it fresh, obviously. And uh, he did this partly by not assuming that the night before's performance was one he had to copy, going to it fresh, as, as you ought to, in fact. This is particularly important when you're coming to the soliloquies, um, not least to be or not to be. To be. Or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. You've got to be in the moment, as the cliché goes. And he was... I watched him on DVD the other day, actually, and he, he was lively energetic, but full of humour and pathos. And it, I mean, he got so many of the qualities in Hamlet that I'm sure his technique was the right one. To sleep. To sleep. A chance to dream. Hi. there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Well, you have some wonderful stories uh, about Jacoby, also Richard Burton, in the book, and how he sometimes misbehaved on stage. Can you tell us about that? The Welsh rugby match? Yes, absolutely. That was very amusing. He, uh, Richard Burton, who came from Wales and was a huge rugby fan, once they were into the run of Hamlet and he got slightly bored, as he 
confessed, uh, he used to make sure that some of his movement allowed him to go to the wings so he could hear the latest score in the rugby match. <laughs> so that meant he was, he was practically doing the whole play from what his stage left. His Hamlet was very stationary, I imagine. Uh, no, actually, no. He would just whip across to the oh. wings and um, someone would say, oh, it's it's 18-4. And then he'd go back again to the centre of the stage. <laughs> that wasn't, I'm sure that wasn't distracting at all. Um, I, I am thinking, though, I can't stop yep. thinking about these misbehaving Hamlets before we get to the modern ones. Peter <laughs> O'Toole was another one. His director was Laurence Olivier. And you write that one matinee, having been picking racing winners from sporting life with the stagehands in the wings, he went on still unknowingly wearing his glasses. And and Noel Coward was in the audience and just started giggling, as did the rest of uh, uh, the people watching. And later he said, if you want to know what it's like to be lonely, really lonely, try playing Hamlet. Yes, that, that anecdote is absolutely true. Um, the problem with that production and why he had obviously lost his concentration was that Olivier, who wanted to impose his own interpretation on the play, on the production, and Peter O'Toole soon fell out with Olivier. They just disagreed on lots of aspects of the play. Right, they really did seem to, to butt heads. And later O'Toole said, um, you quote him saying, the worst bloody play ever written, Hamlet. Actors do it out of vanity. I only did it because I was flattered out of my trousers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, um, I, I don't think many actors do it out of vanity. I think it's seen as the role you have to do in, in the early years, just as King Lear at the later years of your career, is the one that you have to tackle. And it's so challenging that a couple of the people I spoke to, um, David Tennant and Maxine Peake, who played it, both told me that there was a point in which they wanted to flee from the theatre. And Maxine Peake, who played it at Manchester, uh, during one of the previews, she suddenly was overwhelmed by the enormity of it all. And she sat during the interval on the steps of the stage door and had a little cry, as she put it, and thought, why am I doing this? Why did I think this was a good idea? Maxine Peake, she was a lovely Hamlet, I think, a real standout. She had this beautifully fluent delivery. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavy with my disposition to this goodly frame, the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you. This brave, oh, hanging firmament, this majestical roof wretched with golden fire. Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. She initially started out playing Hamlet as a woman, uh, but gradually found this wasn't working for her, and they wondered about playing her, her him as a transgender person. But she decided that this, this was impractical, and in the end she decided that she was a woman trapped in a man's body. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. 
the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. <laughs> no, nor woman neither. <laughs> Though by your smiling you seem to say so. She said afterwards to me that it made her access elements of herself as an actress that she'd just not been able to access before. Yes, she was really fascinating. And I have to say, I've only seen it in DVD as well. But she, she played Hamlet as a woman who feels inherently male. But you don't necessarily see that or, or experience that as a, someone watching the play. But it, it seemed to inform her or, or allowed her to access the part. As you say, it's kind of one of those techniques or maybe a, a, an accidental technique or trick, you might say, that enabled her to, to come to the part in an original or fresh way. Yes, it was very impressive the way she did that. I mean, she had a sort of David Bowie haircut, um, and there was—I mean—it was quite an androgynous performance in many ways, which obviously suited what she was trying to do. She felt that she had not quite got the vocal delivery right, and uh, she also felt that if she were to do it again, she said um, she definitely would, um, but that she'd play it less physical, but more cerebral, which I thought was interesting. Oh, that is. And that, that could mean different things to different actors, uh, which makes me think that many of the actors in, in the book talk about the techniques that they use to get this firm grasp on a such a complex and slippery character and to place themselves in Hamlet's shoes. And, and you talk about Jonathan Slinger, who played the role at Stratford in 2013, as putting himself in a dark place in order to get inside Hamlet's state of mind. Oh, look at this. Too, too solid flesh would melt. Thaw and resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God. Oh, God. How weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. What did he do to get to a dark place? Yes, um, that was rather striking. Waiting in the wings for his first entrance, he would imagine such things as the death of his parents. And that was a very striking way of dealing with how you get into the role. I mean, some people prepare much more than others. Jude Law was an interesting case. But I will speak to thee. I'll call thee Hamlet. King. Father! Jude Law had a, a year in which to prepare. And rather remarkably, actually, he read memoirs by actors, particularly John Gielgud's memoirs, which he found most useful. He read books about what was happening at the time Shakespeare wrote the play, and he just researched the background in huge detail. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him 
Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now, how abhorred in my imagination it is. My gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips, which I have kissed I know not how oft. Where be your jibes now? Your gambols, your songs, your flashes of merriment that will want to set the table on a roar. You're mining yourself, you're bearing your soul, and it's your soul that is Hamlet. Yes, and some people came up with some interesting techniques to uh, wrap their tongue around the, the, the language as well as their head. For instance, Adrian Lester, who played it for uh, played Hamlet for P- Peter Brook in 2001, uh, he, he told you, I began with the speeches, whispering them to myself in a very staccato rhythm just to hear the sound rather than worrying about the sense. When you're whispering, you don't use your voice. You resonate the vowel sounds differently. And so when you're listening to yourself, certain words take on a deeper resonance. This brave or a hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this? quintessence of dust. Peter Brook praised him for being a man of his time, a person of his time, and he felt that would have a powerful impact on an audience because, as he put it, the play Hamlet is like a crystal ball with many facets and it keeps turning and as it turns you see new, fresh aspects of the whole story and that means you can strip it down to the essential story which he felt was the family story so like several other directors he cut out all the politics and um, the result was uh, extremely compelling I saw it at the Young Vic and uh, it was breathtakingly good. It is fascinating how as you talk to all of these different directors and and actors they all do come down they share this this one uh, practice or this one thing in common as you say they they figure out they have to kind of strip the play to the essentials what is this play about and they just come up with such a, a wide range of answers uh, in in the Adrian Lester case you said it, it's about family and you quote the director Hugh Hunt who directed Michael Redgrave in Hamlet in 1950, and he said that that Hamlet is essentially a revenge play, and this was how it was approached way back when. Whither wilt thou lead me? Speak. I go no further. Mark me. I will. My hour is almost come, and I to sulfurous and tormenting flames must render up myself. 
It is this plot, the story of a man called upon to revenge his father's death that must never be lost sight of, however absorbed he may, we may be by the many fine passages of verse or telling twists of character. And early on, it seems that, that many directors approached it this way, and then later that shifted, and Paul Schofield said that Vendetta just doesn't communicate to modern audiences anymore. List, list, oh list, if thou didst ever thy dear father love, oh God, revenge is foul and most unnatural murder. I think Schofield is, is more accurate than Hugh Hunt. I mean, it is a revenge play in the, in the barest, crudest sense of the plot, but it's so many more things than that. And I think modern directors in the last 20, 30 years have not concentrated on the revenge as such, um, because that is the more melodramatic side of of Hamlet, but focused more on the dysfunctional families, both of Hamlet's and of um, Polonius, uh, with Laertes and Ophelia. I mean, one of the problems that an actor has with Ophelia is that in his long scene with her, you have to decide as an actor whether you did really love Ophelia, as, as he says he does, or whether you didn't, as he also says he does. If thou dost marry, I'll give thee this plague for a dowry. Be thou as chaste as ice, as pure as snow, thou shalt not escape calumny. Farewell. Oh, heavenly powers, restore him! I have heard of your paintings well enough. God hath given you one face, and you make yourselves another. You jig, and you amble, and you lisp, and you nickname God's creatures, and you make your wantonness your ignorance. Go to, I'll no more, aunt. It hath made me mad. I say we will have no more marriage. Those that are married already, all but one, shall live. The rest shall keep as they are. To another I go! The actors come up with so many interpretations to to get themselves into the part. The directors come up with so many um, techniques as well to get the whole cast or the cast as a whole into the mindset of their their play and their approach. And one in particular that I thought was really interesting that that you describe is what the um, the remarkable and, and very tragic Buzz Goodbody did in the in the 1970s to tell us what she did with her cast she staged a kind of uh, kind of a group encounter a, a, a burial yes that was very remarkable they were rehearsing and she persuaded the vicar of the local church in Stratford St Mary's that they could dig up uh, an area of unhallowed ground and Ophelia could rehearse being a corpse in it, and therefore Hamlet and Laertes, who fight over her in the grave, could, as it were, in a real situation, not in a, a rehearsal room, uh, play through that scene and try and make it as convincing as possible. That was very remarkable. And intense, and, and, and as I said, tragic. She, she took her own life during previews. Yes, she did. That was extremely tragic. And... Um, they managed to get through the previews and into the, into the production, into the run. But that was, I mean, she was such a promising director and she was just breaking into the big time. 
Um, it was it was terrible. There, you cover at least more than fifty years of of Hamlet's in this book. After all your research and all the people you talked to and all of the performances you've watched, what's your favorite Hamlet? Because I think everyone has their favorite Hamlet. And I, and I know I have a new one just from this last few weeks uh, prepping this, and it's Andrew Scott, who people might know from his role as Moriarty in the BBC series Sherlock. The sun. Good Hamlet, cast thy knighted colour off, and let thine eye look like a friend on Denmark. Hmm. Do not forever with thy veiled lids Seek for thy noble father in the dust. Thou knowest tis common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. Aye, madam, it is common. If it be, why seems it so particular with thee? Seems, madam. Nay, it is. I know not seems. Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration of forced breath. No, nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected behavior in the visage, together with all forms, moods, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. These indeed seem for their actions that a man might play. But I have that within which passeth show, these but the trappings and the suits of woe. It is sweet. Um, I think my favourite one is Simon Russell Beale. Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it as many of our players do, I'd as leave the town crier spoke my lines. Nor do not saw the air too much with your hand thus, but use all gently. For in the very torrent, tempest, and as I may say, whirlwind of your passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. Oh, it offends me to the soul to hear a robustuous periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters, to very rags, to split the ears of the groundlings, who for the most part are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. I would have such a fellow whipped for erd-doing termagant. Within the book, I have reprinted a small volume that I did for the National Theatre called Hamlet Observed. And what it was was a detailed description from the first day of rehearsal uh, through to the first night and then the trip the company made to Elsinore and, and toured thereafter. And it enabled me to interview Simon and John Caird, the director, the way they struggled with certain problems and overcame them. And um, then when they finally took it to Elsinore, uh, which was one of the most magical moments of my life, I must say, sitting there actually inside Elsinore Castle. Be not too tame, neither but let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action, with this special observance that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold, as to her, the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature. I know this is not your job, but (laughs) do you have an idea of a Hamlet you haven't seen yet? Or did anyone talk to you of a Hamlet that they haven't produced yet, but but they burn to. Do you mean a particular actor? An actor or a director or just someone who has an inkling of where Hamlet is going in the future. I think the answer there is no. <laughs> Sorry, but I, I, 
I, d- I haven't come across mm-hmm. that. No, I can understand. Although a lot of them do talk about their regrets, like as Maxine Peake, for instance, did. That, you know, she wished she'd gotten certain the rhythm of the verse right. Yeah, certainly there were several, well, not several, but Maxine Peake is an example of somebody who wanted to play it again. So did David Tennant. So, so did Jude Law. Jude Law was very articulate about why I asked him at the end of the interview um, would he ever consider playing Hamlet again and uh, he said why not you get to speak possibly the most beautiful lines about humankind ever given to an actor thank you so much for this look back over decades and decades of this play that is so special to so many of us thank you very much I've enjoyed it immensely thank you Jonathan Kroll is the author of Performing Hamlet, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2018. He's also the author of Performing King Lear, Gielgud to Russell Beale, and a biography of John Gielgud called John Gielgud, Matinee Idol to Movie Star. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. What a Piece of Work was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Gareth Wood at The Sound Company in London. There's something I'd like to ask you to do. It's something I ask on every episode of Shakespeare Unlimited, and I'd like to explain why. A lot of the podcasting platforms decide which podcasts to recommend by looking at the ones that have the most reviews and ratings by their listeners. So. If you like Shakespeare Unlimited and you'd like to tell others how good it is, please rate and review this podcast. I'm really grateful for your help. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself in Washington, D.C., come visit us at the Folger on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with a first folio, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks again for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger director Michael Whitmore.